1: And so we begin another week on Political Rewind. Uh, If you haven't noticed, the November 3rd election is barreling toward us like a bullet train. Uh, But of course, the election is really already underway. Today starts the second full week of early voting here in Georgia. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the figures uh, of what we uh, know has happened so far with our our panel so let's get right to it we got just too much to talk about let's not waste any time jim galloway my partner on mondays and fridays on the show you know him as the lead political writer for the atlanta journal constitution wednesday and sunday his column appears in the newspaper and he oversees the political insider blog at ajc.com Jim, it's astonishing how these elections all of a sudden are upon us. We we see them every two years, but we sometimes forget how fast they come up. Last two weeks, and this is this is you know this
2: in Georgia, this is the time of a uh, time of uh, the electoral season where if you're going to see any any shifts back to Georgia's traditional uh, uh, dynamics
1: uh, with Republicans do, uh, dominating, this is where you're going to find it. That's a great point. In past elections, uh, despite the hopes of Democrats in the last week plus two weeks, Republicans seem to come home. But we'll watch and see if that changes in the uh, next 15 days until the election. Uh, Dr. Audrey Haynes is with us, political science professor at the University of Georgia and the founder and head of the Applied Politics Program at University of Georgia, which trains students uh, uh, for a career in politics. How you doing, Audrey?
0: Doing very well, Bill. Thank you.
1: Glad to have uh, you with us. Stephen Fowler is here. He's the political reporter for GPB News. Stephen, in just a few minutes, we're going to talk about a blockbuster report that you and your partners at ProPublica, the nonprofit um, uh, news site, have put together. Um, thank you, though, for being with us to talk about that report and everything else, Stephen.
3: Oh, yeah. This is the time of year where everything I do is data and numbers and voting, and I am excited to be here to talk about
1: it. Okay, terrific. And we welcome for the first time the uh, CEO uh, and publisher of uh, Mundo Hispanico, Rene Alegria. Uh, It's really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, We're um, really excited. You have – how long have you now – had mundo hispanico uh in your portfolio renee hi bill uh first of all thank you so much for having me uh
4: we've uh we acquired the platform and the the paper two years ago now uh in september so a little over two years ago uh and we have grown it to be the uh, third largest spanish language digital platform in the country
1: Yeah, it's become a very powerful megaphone um, for uh, Hispanics across the United States, so it's really a pleasure uh, to welcome you uh, to the show today. All right, let's talk uh, right away about early voting, mail-in voting numbers. Uh, Jim, we now have seen, according to Secretary of State's latest update, 1,482,000-plus votes cast, uh, 18 uh, 819,000 of them are uh, in person ballots. Um, mail in ballots uh, account for about 663,000 of the votes that are still have been counted. There's still, though, we have 663,000 mail in ballots returned, but there are requests for like 2.3 million. So we have a lot of mail in ballots to go. There are people who are already sending. Uh, emails to me and to our team saying we need to get our mail-in ballots. We haven't gotten them yet. Uh, the Secretary of State's office assures us everybody will get a chance to be able to vote by mail. But the voting continues, whether it's by mail or in person. Jim, at an extraordinary pace.
2: Right, and and one of the one of the changes we've seen in the last, uh, I'd say, ten days to two weeks is 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 a, a the Democratic messaging on this. Uh, they are telling their supporters. To go in person, if 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 they haven't gotten a ballot, or if they have suspicions that their ballot won't be, won't get to the, the destination in time, just take these take these next few days and and do your bit standing in line. There, uh, it's it's a it's a very much a, a change in in attitude
1: from uh, from what we were seeing in June, just in June. And, and let me point out to people, if you did apply for a mail-in ballot, but but you take Jim's or the Democrats' advice that Jim is reporting on, you can go and vote in person. Now, you will go through a process uh, where they will check to see whether, in fact, if you requested a mail-in ballot, whether you actually cast that ballot or not. But you, you certainly can vote in person, even if you requested an absentee ballot, as long as you didn't already uh, send it in. Stephen, one other, I guess, piece of slightly good news about... The uh, uh, torrent of uh, mail-in ballots we're expecting is that the Secretary of State has established rules now where starting today, 15 days before the election, counties across the state can begin processing those absentee ballots, checking them in, making sure that they're valid uh, and, and and getting them set to be counted, but they can't go ahead and count them at this point. But they can be prepared for that election night when they're going to have to count all of them, right?
3: Right. So what this does is this gives counties extra time to do what they need to do so that we get timely election results. We've seen hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots come back already. And in some of the larger counties, you're going to see them start to peel off workers to do this. So what this means is in some states, they can't start processing absentee ballots until the polls close. So they got to do all that and then start pouring through mail-in ballots. So for Georgia, at least, what we're going to see is the first results that come pouring in are going to be in-person early voting and absentee ballots that have come in well in advance. So we should have a pretty good idea Uh, of those votes coming in sooner than many other places in the country
1: you know renee this might seem self-evident but it's worth making the point anyway um when when people watch the news when they see the candidates for u.s senate for congress for presidency uh out there campaigning uh our mindset may be to think about well This is all moving toward November 3rd and how people will cast their ballots. But it is really important to point out that what's happening today, yesterday, tomorrow, in fact, is having an immediate impact because voters are going to the polls already. So this notion that you can reframe your candidacy, uh, which some people are talking about with President Trump, there's truth to that. But the vote is already underway, Renee
4: that you're, you're 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 right on and i i think you know in some ways november 3rd i mean it's, it's such a such a phantom date because we are right now today voting right and so we're we're in the midst of it and i i think you know for for the most part uh we're we're, we're uh I can, I can certainly speak for the hispanic community you know we're we're uh were galvanized and breaking down information for the Hispanic community in a way that uh, in these these pivotal swing states Georgia in particular too you know uh, the, those the, the party that's going to get the hispanic vote is going to be the one that's going to be in in power and you know i mean georgia look the the hispanic community has grown 120 uh, uh, percent between 2000 and 2015, and uh, that rate of acceleration uh, has only jumped in the last five years. So, you know, these razor-thin razor margins are are going to be decided by uh, Hispanic voters, and uh, so right right now we're seeing kind of a, a a preface of what is to come in future elections in these pivotal swing states.
0: Yes, I would add on to what Renee just said is that the expectation is we are going to likely have the highest voting turnout we've had since 1908. In 1908, it was somewhere around 65 or 66 percent. So, you know, one of the things that we can say, at least in terms of our secretary of state's office, is that they are anticipating this and they're they're doing some tests and doing some preparation. We're quite lucky um, that we're seeing that kind of activity. And, you know, one of the things that is driving this, and I've heard when they use the word galvanized, but, um, you know, voting has galvanized primarily because people see such a strong difference between the two parties. In fact, in 2000, if you were to ask people, does it matter who wins? Is there a difference between the two parties? It was somewhere around half that said yes. If you ask that same question today, what you'll find is it's closer to 83 percent. And those numbers are high for yeah. Democrats and Republicans. So they are responding to what they see happening.
2: Hey, hey uh, all right, uh, Andre, um, Andre oh. if I, Bill, if I could just jump in here, just just a point of clarification. When, Andre, when you were saying that the, the turnout rate in 1908 was 65 percent or so, is that a national figure or is that a Georgia
1: figure?
0: national figure national figure
1: okay so before I race to Google Galloway you are probably do the same thing what was the night that was the William Howard Ta- Taft election right why would there have been such enormous turnout for that election professor Haynes
0: it was a tumultuous time you know and lots of things happened. in fact you know if you look around that time period in the early 1900s there were things that were changing in fact You know, in 2018, we had high rates of turnout, and those were um, the highest since 1914. And this is when we had amendments that changed how senators were elected. But, you know, everyone knows Woodrow Wilson, sort of um, the Republican Party was having some cleavages within it, right, with, you know, Roosevelt and and Taft and so on. But, you know, there was Woodrow Wilson and, you know, uh, foreign Foreign policy was a big deal. And people were really concerned with what was going on. And, you know, party politics played a big role. All
1: right. I just wanted to make sure we understood why the uh, turnout was so big for that election of uh, William Howard Taft as president in 1908. Stephen Fowler, your piece with ProPublica has gotten a great deal of attention. Uh, It's up on the GPB News website. We'll put a link to uh, to it on our social media. But I'm going to let you kind of walk us through the highlights of it but let me just uh read if i may the lead a georgia public broadcasting pro publica analysis found georgia voter rolls have grown nearly two million voters since 2012 while the number of polling places has dropped by about 10 percent and what you tell us among other things is that um there is some reason to suggest that uh, the, the the fewer polling places has led to much longer lines to wait to vote in minority precincts. Um, so talk to us a little bit about uh, other highlights of this so we can all discuss it.
3: Right. So Georgia's population has grown over the last few years, voting population especially. Um, and statewide, the number of polling places has dropped by about 10 percent what I focused on in this story is nine metro Atlanta counties that have added the most raw number of voters. And you have a mix. You have Fulton and DeKalb that are um, heavily Democratic areas. You have Hall and Forsyth that are heavily white Republican areas. And the overall bigger picture is that polling place sizes are getting larger because there are more people and very few of these counties have been adding polling places to keep up with it. So for example, you know, in Forsyth County in 2012 there were 4100 people on average at a polling place. Well now that number's up to 8100, you know, nearly doubling in that time. And so while both white and non-white voters are affected by this growth happening all over the metro Atlanta area, because of the size of some of these specifically majority black precincts and because of the voting patterns and behaviors, it ends up having some of these longer lines in non-white communities like we saw in the June 9th primary, like we saw in the 2018 governor's race, and like people fear we will see in the November election.
1: So, um, you' it, 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 let me be clear about something here uh, before I get the rest of the panel involved, Stephen. Um, you're not saying that you found evidence of an of, a, of an overt effort to suppress minority voters, but you can't completely discount the fact that, that it's harder to vote and there's not as many places to vote in minority communities. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, so
3: what you won't find is intentional efforts to overcrowd polls in certain communities in Georgia and around the areas, but what you see is kind of a cause and effect. I mean, one of the main places that I looked at in the story is Union City, about 20 minutes southwest of Atlanta they have about 22,000 people and for the primary had three polling places. And two of those three were some of the biggest in the entire state. And one of those was the Christian City Welcome Center, where the last vote in the June 9th primary was actually cast on June 10th. And so it's a majority black city, majority black polling places. And as others have pointed out, you know, those communities have the long lines and the problems, whereas other communities in other parts of the state had shorter lines or little weights or little problems. And it's a mixture of voter behavior, people voting on Election Day versus voting early and access to resources like how many polling places are around.
1: Um, Jim, uh, we need to point out here that uh, there was a time before 2013 when closing down polling places uh, needed in Georgia, needed pre clearance from the Justice Department uh, because uh, of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, which, which said justice has to oversee how changes are being made in how Georgians vote because of past discrimination. And then in 2013, the Supreme Court ruled on Shelby uh, v. Holder, which eliminated uh, the uh, pre clearance reg- rules, which makes it easier for a, a Counties to close down polling places, Jim.
2: Right, and 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 look, as as Stephen points out, there are several reasons for you can have several reasons for doing so. You can you can you can say that it's it's a matter of cost. You can say that 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 this facility is 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 not handicapped accessible, or or or, or some like, We we've seen these excuses here here before. the The problem is when you have many motives. You can also have. It's easier to hide a motive, and I think that's one thing that 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 uh, that African Americans are worried about when it comes to 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 voting. I mean, basically, what what Mr. Fowler's research has shown us is is that uh, in in Georgia, longer lines generally impact Democratic voters more so than Republican voters. Am I am I right about that, Stephen?
3: I mean, yeah, for the most part, because, you know, typically like we've seen uh, hyper aware of in this election, um, certain voters tend to vote early versus in person on Election Day. You know, you tend to have more voters in these urban areas like Atlanta and DeKalb County and places where you have more people packed into a poll that you don't simply see in the parts of the state that typically tend to vote more Republican.
4: If renee I jump in on this sure no i you know i mean look i, I think if, if you were to ask a voter of color in, in you know in, in whatever state um you're going to get a of, of course that is you know it, it's it's widely acknowledged within uh communities of color that that uh, this type of voter suppression exists it's it's real the, the fact that uh, stephen peace highlights it through fact and trend i mean that that in itself brings to light to others that really take their vote and the ease of their vote for granted so i mean you you do see a, a, a change at play but you know th- there is a, a a jaded sense of uh, voters of color that okay like w- w- we have to work three times as hard to get our vote to register and to count. So uh, that's just the reality of, of living in uh, the United States.
1: Audrey, unmute your phone.
0: I was hoping I would go one show without doing that. You know? So.
1: The started. <laughs> you know,
0: I, I said this morning prior that I hadn't had quite enough coffee this morning. So with 1908. I just want to make sure I was mixing elections. But we're talking about William Jennings Bryant and a very popular populist candidate. And there are some connections, I think, is what you're trying to pull out of me there um, with a populist candidate that was very popular. Didn't win for a third time. Anyway. Let me just add to what everyone has been saying. I think that, you know, even though we may not see, you know, direct causal, you know, this is what's happening in terms of disenfranchising black voters, what we are seeing is finally people paying attention to what's going on and wanting to do something about it. Um, With uh, one of the things that's driving elections and these uh, higher levels of voting is the fact that people are turning out and and. And black voters in particular are turning out because they are concerned. You know, this election will have a lot to do with issues, you know, George Floyd and things that have happened and people are turning out. And when they're turning out at such high numbers, it seems apparent that in the areas where they're turning out systematically, their resources are not there. Um, And something needs to be done. And, you know, again, even if it is not something that is directly done by one person sitting in one office trying to control things, it has a lot to do with how resources are distributed in our country.
1: Um, Stephen, uh, let me let me uh, uh, ask you a a question that we may not have a, a data driven answer to at least right this minute, but I think is basically correct. Uh, There is a propensity for minority voters, African-American voters particularly, to vote in person rather than by mail, which is another reason why if you have fewer precincts available in minority communities, it leads to longer lines, correct?
3: Right. And so with this election, uh, both elections this year, because of the coronavirus, some of the traditional wisdom and data on that has kind of been upended, um, especially... Since the 2018 governor's race, when Stacey Abrams made voting by mail a central push of her campaign. But what we do see, yes, is the the people who are most likely to show up on Election Day are the people who don't have flexible work schedules to be able to take advantage of three weeks of early voting or don't have trust of a system where they don't physically see their ballot being cast and counted. And I mean, as an example, take Gwinnett County, for example. Gwinnett County has had the exact same number of polling places since 2010. In that time, they've added a few hundred thousand voters. And theoretically, if each polling place had an equal number of growth happening, then maybe it would be an equal burden. But what we're seeing is huge growth in non-white voters and Hispanic American population and Asian American population and African American population in that county. And so you've seen pockets of growth outstrip the resources that are available there. And what that does, it doesn't necessarily cause longer lines, but if, say, a polling place doesn't open on time or there's equipment missing or there's a delay those polling places with those communities end up having to bear more of a brunt of those problems than say if a machine were to break in a rural white county and a couple hundred people showed up there
1: all right uh, Stephen it's a it's a really meaningful piece and I really encourage our uh, listeners to go to the GPB news website where they can read it. Um, Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, we have so much more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. And we will be right back.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Jim Galloway, Audrey Haynes, Stephen Fowler, and Renee Alegria are all with us on today's uh, show. Um, I want to let's talk a little bit about the Friday night rally that uh, President Trump held down in uh, Macon. Um, we're going to talk more about President Trump and his messaging right now at this stage in the campaign in a couple of minutes. But Jim Galloway, what really got an enormous amount of attention was when David Perdue took the stage with uh, the president on Friday night and, um wanted to talk about the democratic vice presidential candidate and here's what he said but the most insidious thing that chuck schumer and joe biden are trying to perpetrate and bernie and elizabeth and kamala or what kamala or kamala kamala Kamala, 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 i don't know whatever Uh, so jim that has been that has become an enormous controversy it has been played big in national media uh, uh, John Ossoff's campaign says they raised a million eight off of it over the weekend. Uh, Purdue insists that he met no disrespect, but this is one of those moments that can be very meaningful in a campaign.
2: Yeah, I, I would say maybe the first couple syllables might not, might have been uh, inadvertent, but the, uh, the, the, the 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 ten that followed uh were were very very definitely intended uh and and look uh, butchering some of your opponent's name is 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 a way to to denigrate we can't we i mean it's that's that's very very common at at, at trump rallies uh and it's common in, uh, in in other campaigns as well here's where i would say david perdue has had been has been trying to walk this delicate balance between being a Trump supporter and being a, a a a candidate who can also appeal to to these suburban women uh, in 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 Metro Atlanta who have become so important uh, to statewide victories here, and that did not help him. That was, you know, I mean, we've got a Senate race, his his Senate race with John Ossoff is is really hanging. It's 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 on a razor's edge, and. Even a minor thing like that, some people would say it's not so minor, but a very well publicized gaffe like that uh, it can really it can kill you in the last fourteen days.
4: Listen, I I, I really? think yeah, listen, I give I have a name that is to, to many uh, difficult to pronounce, right? Um, and and hearing that clip, you know, it's it's so clear that. He's attempting to stoke fear in the hearts of what he thinks his a voter looks like. He's, you know, painting Harris as the other. And by doing so, it's just such a clear sign of the entire Republican Party right now, which is feeling like they're on the ropes. They have to resort to these types of tactics, you know. And, and as, a, as a voter of color myself, I look at that. I listen to that. And it riled me up, you know. I mean, hence, you know, the the adding to the coffers of of Ossoff in in two million dollars in what, like an hour or something, something like that. Um, and, you know, I mean, you could, you could just imagine that, uh, you know, when you when you have a a voter by the name of, you know, m- Maria Rodriguez or you know, or something even m- more difficult to to pr- pr- pronounce, you know, that is a direct attack on us. And we will, you know, resoundingly answer that attack with dollars to political opponents as well as votes. So, you know, I mean, in, 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 a, in a weird
1: way, it's, he, he, he really dug himself a hole there. Um, Audrey, you know, um, it, it has been pointed out that Kamala Harris and David Perdue both serve in the United States Senate. I think they are on a, at least one committee. Together, he certainly must. If he doesn't know how to pronounce her name, it's it's unfortunate that he would have a colleague, one of a hundred, that whose name he can't pronounce correctly. Um, But he probably can. And and let me throw something out at you, Audrey, and and see if this resonates. Um, That Trump rally, like all of them, produced giddy moments for people like a David Perdue. You've got a throng, a cheering crowd, so excited to see the president. And it may take away a moment when, in, in 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 say a debate setting, in some more formal setting, you might be a little more careful about how you talk. But Purdue, in I suspect, getting carried away with a moment, made a remark. And by the way, there are now uh, um, uh, there's an enormous number, a growing number of Indian voters uh, in Georgia who may look askance at at this. So. I throw all that out at you. Pick up what you want to, Audrey.
0: Well, I think that's a good point that you made, Bill. I mean, you know, Kamala Harris is someone who comes from um, a background that includes uh, Indian Americans. And there is a significant portion of Indian Americans who... support the Republican Party but when you, when you make a, a, a statement or you act in a particular way that seems to be making fun of their heritage, that can really have a backlash. I would also note that with um, Senator Perdue, he's been running an ad campaign that if you watch the campaign it it tries to emote empathy, caring of Georgia citizens, um, you know uh, respectful behavior, But as a U.S. senator that is supposed to have this uh, nature of a very collegial, senior, responsible kind of, you know, atmosphere, he didn't act that way at all. And it really undercut, I think, um, the respect that independence and primarily might have given him. So I don't think it was a good thing to lose control over, even in the moment.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know. Of the top of the ticket in Georgia, David Perdue is the one that would be most likely to win if Democrats flipped other seats. And he really had one job heading into these final weeks of the campaign: it's don't make negative headlines. And the thing that stands out about this, as opposed to you know the attacks that Democrats have laid on about uh, stock sales or uh, tying him to Trump or other things, is that. Pretty swiftly, the local news, TV stations and newspapers around the state all very quickly ran with that story, noting that he intentionally mispronounced her name, not necessarily giving him the benefit of the doubt that was spun afterwards by his campaign. But in the markets and places where it matters, you know, the New York Times doesn't vote in a Georgia election, but, you know, somebody listening to WMAZ and Macon does. And so, seeing that response from media in Georgia and seeing those headlines play out is not looking good for David Perdue in, uh, you know, a six-second soundbite.
4: You know, what struck me, um, you know, obviously, besides the politics of of race and color, was the generational divide. It seemed so out of Touch. You know, if if you're if you're a millennial, Generation Z, you hear that, you watch that, and you're just you, you just kind of think that's exactly what I am not. That's exactly what my generation is not. And so that that really does resonate. What what Purdue did does resonate on in so so many ways. It's so just had to make that point.
2: Yeah, you know, Bill. One way to measure uh, whether a campaign thinks it's made a misstep is 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 the speed of the, of the reaction, the attempt to 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 uh, to fix what went wrong, and that's one thing that really struck me was that uh, the Purdue campaign, which is a good operation, they I mean, they're generally on their toes. They, I mean, it was it was maybe an hour, two hours. I mean. Uh, before there was there was a, there was a statement out out saying that in no way did he in, in, intend to uh, to insult or or disrespect uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, but you spoke of enthusiasm. The other non-trump uh, story of that day it was just the, it just was one of the uh, just a weird, very weird incident, of course, was uh, State representative Vernon Jones crowd surfing. Uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a uh, uh, a, a sea of people who weren't wearing masks. That was, that was one of the yeah. stranger moments. And it may, it, that, that may, that we, we may come to identify with that, uh, uh, in, in the days and weeks to come.
1: Yeah, I want to be a little bit careful about the Purdue incident. I mean, certainly it is something his campaign is going to have to respond to. This election is far from over. Uh, Although, again, with early voting underway, a moment like that can have an impact on how people are voting in the next couple of days. We don't really know. But, uh, Audrey Haynes, let's not forget uh, that George Allen, a senator in Virginia who planned to run for president, I think, in 2008— uh, got himself in trouble. He he had an opposition uh, uh, videographer coming to all of his events, uh, shooting video that could be used against him in his campaign for reelection. And uh, he apparently was a minority uh, young man, and there was that famous macaca moment in which George Allen pointed him out to the crowd and said, oh, there is that macaca, whoever. It doomed George Allen's political future at a time when he was looked at as a leading candidate for the next round of presidential campaigning
0: absolutely and when races are this close and when people are paying this close attention i mean we are in a pandemic (laughs) and everyone is um you know watching videos and and i have never seen the electorate as focused and um aware as i've seen it in my lifetime so i mean there's a lot of attention and again Purdue is someone who is supposed to be the senior disciplined candidate that's out there. And he's also running in a statewide election um, and has to appeal to a broader coalition than, say, someone running in a congressional district. So he has to be careful. And those suburban women and those independents that could break and make a difference, you know, he really will have to – make it up to them. I mean, they're going to need to hear something from him. And hopefully they heard his response. But what if they didn't? What if it's just sitting there replaying again and again on Twitter?
1: Okay, um, we'll watch how that unfolds in the days ahead. I want to uh, turn to another story pretty quickly, uh, because we, we can follow it as it unfolds. But Renee, let me start with you on this. Um, as, as you know, the uh, the White House has for months now been trying to, uh, uh, I don't wa- want to be careful about my choice of words, let's say influence the way the census unfolds this year. Uh, and um, they so far have not been very successful in their uh, efforts. Uh, well, they have had one big success. They, they were able to get a court to agree with them they ought to close the census down early, which has now happened. But now the Supreme Court has agreed to speedily weigh in on an effort by the administration to exclude undocumented immigrants from the count. Uh, the You know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, the impact of that exclusion can be in, have enormous consequences in a state like Georgia, yes? No, ab- absolutely.
4: And when you think about this historically, I, th- th- the census, when, when it started in 1790, all individuals were counted. All individuals were counted, not just U.S. citizens. So for this to happen now goes against the orthodoxy of what we know to be the census. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, the, the individuals counted in a census helps to delineate the federal funds that are given to that particular community for services. So this is just a lose-lose proposition uh, whether you're uh undocumented or or you're a citizen and I, I i do think that there needs to be more outrage about this because it really is just cheating the american people
2: you know it's, what bill what's unusual about this is i mean all last week uh we went through a a a, a senate hearing for a a new new no- nominee to the US Supreme Court and the th- and her, the theme of of amy conan uh um uh, county Bar- Barrett was Barrett. Was, was Barrett was that was was that she was an originalist she was a textualist uh she had, it was the original thought of the constitution that 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 counted and and we know that the founding fathers wanted everyone counted, maybe not to the same degree i mean a, a certain uh, a very very large sector of the population was only counted as as three fifths of a person. Uh, that's that's uh, the the enslaved population of the US at the time but but there's no question that everyone was to be counted in that and and, and it's it's just interesting to see uh, see a reframing
1: away from, from that original intent um, Stephen and then Audrey. Stephen, let me get you in here first. Uh, Renee points out the funding impact, where federal funds are directed, uh, is is in many ways influenced by the census, but redistricting is as well. And what what if you don't count undocumented immigrants, uh, it can shift the population centers for your uh, for your congressional districts. Stephen, I mean,
3: I mean that's right. You've got you know obviously with growth in metro Atlanta, you're going to have different uh, districts drawn and different population centers. But, you know, if, if you're talking about a wide disparity and the number of people that are counted that live here and the number of people that actually live here, you could have some very different lines drawn, uh, not just in metro Atlanta, but across the state that, um, like you mentioned, affect funding and different things like that, but could you know, as we get down to the state House and state Senate level, end up uh, affecting control and balance and who's in charge of each of those chambers as the lines are drawn to have more favorable populations for them. So, I mean, the, the census is more than just, you know, answering the call when somebody knocks on your door or filling out a form that like, really so much of our government and democracy and funding and services comes from a once-a-decade activity, that the stakes are really high for everyone in Georgia.
0: Uh, let me add to what Stephen said. Um, you know, one, one quick thing. It's really up to Congress. I mean, the language that's written relative to the census is that the, the, we carry out the census, quotes, in such manner as they, and this refers to Congress, shall direct. So it's not in the onus of the Justice Department or the executive. This is a congressional responsibility. And um, there was a Pew study. So, when, since we were talking about apportionment, let me just tell you something that Pew has done that's really uh, interesting. They actually looked at real data, real data of states that have um, potentially undocumented illegal immigrant populations, and they did a calculation to see which states would actually lose and which states would actually gain. The states that would lose would be Texas, Florida, and California, blue state, swing state, red state. The states that would gain would be Alabama, Minnesota, and Ohio. Uh, Blue states, red states, and swing states, not in any order in particular. But so, you know, what Republicans really may not be thinking about is that, you know, they are the party that talks about the economy. And if you drain cities of their resources, if you drain them of the ability to maintain themselves as as the engines of capitalism, you hurt the country. In terms of like political outcomes, if you really get down into the data, I mean, you have a basically a, not really any shift beyond in terms of power in terms of red states or blue states in, in that area, but you do harm cities' ability to carry out what they need to do for their citizens, period.
1: I'm fascinated by that. And Audrey, would you forward to us the link to that study? I would love for us to be able to post it. uh, And I'd like to see it myself. So thank you for making uh, that clear. All right, let's do this. We got to get another break out of the way. When we come back, let's talk a little bit about disinformation online in 2020. You're listening to Political Rewind. In yesterday's Atlanta General Constitution, Jim Galloway's column uh, was about Russian troll factories and also about two uh, uh, academics here in the United States who uh, monitor them and see an enormous amount of Russian activity online. And Renee Alegria, I know that you live in the digital world, uh, so you uh, must uh, see this with some regularity. Renee, why don't we start with you? Give us, if you could, just a A brief kind of look at what you see as a as a digital entrepreneur happening out there with disinformation. And then I want to get Jim in here.
4: You know, disinformation um, as we know it it isn't about making people believe a lie. It's 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 about making people mistrust the truth. Um, That element of doubt uh, is enough to ferment ideologues over common sense. And you're seeing that play out in all aspects of digital media, social media. Um, it, 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 you know, I, I look at everything through the prism of of, of our platform, right? Which we we obviously, uh, our usership is, is largely Hispanic. Um, our, our immigration to the United States obviously comes from the Americas. And when we take a look at the uh political history of Latin America, from Mexico to Argentina, you have this uh, distrust of a propaganda machine. Um, folks that, frankly, are jaded about what they hear, what they read, and that, that element comes into play with Latino American voters. Uh, when you take a look at what's being pushed out there as disinformation. You know, Hispanic voters are a little bit smarter than that because we're so used to that playing out in, in our uh, political history. But, you know, you, you take a look at 2020 USA uh, and from a digital perspective, it's starting to look like, uh, you know, uh, Pinochet in, in in Chile. And, and they're, that's cause for alarm, you know. So I, I think that there's a... There's a lot of ways that we can all participate in, in, in making what we read, what we watch, uh, you know, a little bit more credible. Uh, but now we know, you know, 2016 happened. Are, are we going to allow 2020 to, to happen? And Jim's piece was amazing
1: in that way. Jim, give, it, give us your uh, uh, brief uh, uh, look at the, the story you posted yesterday.
2: Yeah, uh, basically, you had two Clemson University uh, researchers, uh, Darren Linville and Patrick Warren, who uh, uh, Clemson just happened to have this trove of, of, of. Twitter uh, tw- a cache of of Twitter messages that were just unavailable to anybody else. Two years ago, they started looking at how how uh, at at how different information was flowing across the U.S. They've kept it up. They they've got now they've got a kind of a, a, a financed small institute at Clemson doing that. They've established ties to to the U.S. Army Cybersecurity uh, forces in Augusta. And and basically, what they're documenting is a a, a system in which a, a Russian troll factory, a, an Iranian troll factory, uh, uh, even Cuban, uh, they're they're picking up on on, on differences in 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 among uh, Americans, among the within the American electorate, and they're they're not to uh, to t- 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 Renee's point, this isn't they're they're they they are not necessarily lying what they're doing is they're picking the most extreme messages and amplifying them it's it's uh it's if 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 you're a southerner you call it let's you and him fight uh and, and 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 that has become a just a, a just a very established Russian tactic. You know that that little troll factory that was there in a in a in a in a terrible looking building two years ago is now in a a a, a glassed building in a fine section of town right next to the Volvo deal, dealership. Uh, Russians are pouring money into it, and it's cheap. It's far cheaper than munitions.
1: Um, Audrey. Uh- it it Social media continues to have an overwhelming impact on how people view, uh, certainly politics, and much more of life right now.
0: Oh, absolutely. It does. And, you know, one of the things that we're finding is that our huge uh, corporate uh, social media platforms – are, are really floundering themselves I mean they're trying and they're they're trying to learn some lessons but just recently Twitter's response to the uh, New York Post story I mean we, we were going to talk about that a little bit they um, they didn't really do a good job uh, enforcing their own uh, rules and it just added flames to the fire of the of the uh, the story and the spin that the president has been portraying as a victim of someone who they're against me and they're against you. And and that can be very problematic. I do want to say with what Renee said, um, doubt is very important. And when people doubt, they don't act, they hold back.
1: All right. So I want to jump in and Steve, uh, we're not going to have as much time as we need to, to talk about this, but when, when Audrey points out the New York post story, uh, very simply, the New York post ran a story that no other media organization has picked up on yet. They claim, they say, that they got a hard drive from a laptop turned in by a member of the Biden family to a repair shop. The hard drive has evidence of emails back and forth that, in the simplest way I could say it, uh, show that uh, as Vice President, Joe Biden was trying to help enrich his son, Hunter. Uh, it It is a story that many people think is dubious. Some of our listeners want to know why we're not talking about it. Stephen... Uh, Nobody else has been able to confirm it. And the parentage of this hard drive is in question to begin with. But as Audrey points out, Twitter first suppressed it and then got backlash and only did more to promote this story, to get people talking about this story
3: that's right i mean when you have something like this it's a big bombshell i mean whether it's you know, dealing with the presidential race or even you know data about voting there's a lot of time and energy and effort that goes into vetting these claims and making sure that every t is dotted every i is crossed and there's evidence that that wasn't done with this new york post story in fact one of the people whose names was on the piece allegedly didn't know their name was on it until after it was published according to reporting from the new york times And so it's important, you know, like Audrey said, you know, to have doubt and to kind of treat everything you see with skepticism this close to the election, whether it's something about the presidential candidates, whether it's something about voting rules and laws, you know, to treat everything with skepticism. Because part of the reason these things are so successful, um, like Jim's mentioned in his piece and other things, is because there is an element of people wanting to believe things that confirm their prior thoughts or experiences And so, you know, in these final two weeks, you want to make sure to, you know, uh, verify, then trust to make sure that you don't fall victim to uh, something that is less than true.
4: Another thing that I think happens with disinformation is how it feeds conspiracy theories. You know, we, we have QAnon. You know, which, which now is, is, is leading the, the, the charge in terms of it being controversial uh, with what it does to the electoral process, right? I mean, suddenly disinformation uh, has, has bled into uh, the, the camps of what's real and what's not. And that conspiracy theory uh, is, is something that, that we have to acknowledge as being the outcry of what disinformation and that doubt seeds.
1: Yeah, allegory, or, 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 Oh, Jim, real quick.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, I I would I would just point point you to a uh, 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 a Twitter message from President Trump uh alleging that that uh, the assassination of a of a, of a, of a NAIL, uh, Navy SEAL 6 team uh and 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 uh, 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 an Osama bin Laden poser if you would.
4: Yeah. Really, I mean, it, yeah, it's Yeah, he retweeted it like, it was It's almost like ancient would be another political party in the US. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I wish I had another hour with all of you. I don't. Jim Galloway, Stephen Fowler, Audrey Haynes, Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico. Thank you. we got to get you come back. You've got to be on more often, Renee. We really enjoyed having you along with the rest of this uh, group. We're completely out of time. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. The big Senate debate, Senate race number two, uh, later today and tonight on GPB. We'll talk about it on tomorrow's show Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear a mask. And go get a flu shot. See you all tomorrow.